This is Dylan FM, the podcast that goes deep into the work and world of Bob Dylan. If you love Dylan, you're in the right place with your host, Craig Danuloff. We often look past set lists to see the songs they contain. But what if we didn't? Are there things we can learn by thinking more about the selection of songs, their order, and the role that all of this plays in Bob Dylan's live performances? A new book answers that question. It's called The Power in Politics in Bob Dylan's Live Performances. Play a song for me. And it was edited by today's guests, Aaron Callahan and Court Carney. Aaron is a professor of English at San Jacinto College in Houston, Texas. And Court is a professor of history at Stephen F. Austin State University. They've both presented numerous times at the World of Bob Dylan. They've both been featured on the Dylan Taunts podcast, where Aaron has also been hosting a number of great interviews lately. And they each write and speak on Dylan as key members of what I call the academic wing of the Bob Dylan community. Each has an essay in this book, in addition to their editorial duties, but so do 13 other writers, mostly professors, academics, teachers, or those working in pursuit of an advanced degree. That makes it a scholarly, thoughtful, interesting, well-written, and researched book. I really enjoyed it as each chapter takes the basic idea of Dylan's set lists and finds its own unique time, topic, and angle. In the discussion you're about to hear, we talk about how the book came together and run through briefly each of the 13 chapters, and as only a book on live performances can, the encore. You can buy the book in paperback or on Kindle at Amazon, and there are links in the show notes. There's also a link to a discount if you buy direct from the publisher. Now, here's our discussion on the power and politics of Bob Dylan's live performances. Play a song for me. Welcome, Aaron and Court. Thanks for coming to talk about your new Bob Dylan book. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Craig. So I love the idea of this book from when I first heard about it some months ago, maybe a year, I don't know. But why don't you give me the, the origin story and what was the impetus for this book? Because uh, set lists for Bob, so it's called The Politics and Power of Bob Dylan's Live Performances. Play a song for me. So tell me how this came about and uh, what sort of what the goals were in, in taking on this interesting Bob Dylan top. Well, I'll start. I think it's truly collaborative in how it came about. Court and I met at the World of Bob Dylan in 2019. He gave a fantastic paper on um, St. Augustine. And I went to that panel and we became fast friends. And then we decided to do a panel at another conference in San Diego. And at that conference I presented on the set list, which was, you know, one iteration or the first iteration of the chapter that's in the book. And afterwards, Court said um, he really had the foresight to say, we should do a book about this. Would you like to do a book about it? And I said, sure. So, I mean, I don't know if that's how you remember it, Court, but that's pretty much <clears throat> a summary of how it happened. Your memories have now become my memories. <laughs> we're just melded into one yeah we'll allow that to be the, the well I mean for me I was you know and I knew the set list but I had been at a concert with my parents in 20 October of 2018 and I just started to write down notes about 
the list and the order of the songs. And I've long been fascinated, you know, as Court has with, with set lists. And it just seemed really dark to me. And then I was kind of thinking, as you know, the literature person that I am, that there was an interplay of the words, the lyrics in all of these songs and the way that they were ordered um, that seemed to be saying something more than, you know, than, than just individual songs in a set list. And I, I wanted to explore that a little bit. That's why I think it's so interesting, because people have been obsessed about set lists in a train spotter way. For a long time. I mean, these guys have, you know, there's all the little old things with typewriters, the X's and the O's and the the mm-hmm. charts that people used to make. And obviously, you know, first first time played and numbers of times played and the kind of, they get lost in the stats, but the meaning of it, so to speak, this idea of Bob telling a larger story, either in a show or over a, a tour, a segment of a tour, or even how he's relating to different past periods of his of his work. It's just all really interesting stuff that hasn't, you don't see people talk about. I mean, it's funny, given the 100 million Bob Dylan articles, I just don't remember very many people trying to explore this. And even as I read the book and all the different approaches, uh, you know, maybe it's a dozen, 13 approaches people took, other ones kept coming up. Like, oh, you could look at it this way and you could look at it that way. So I think there's a lot more legs to this. So from that original idea, was the idea always to, recruit papers or chapters from from other writers were you guys going to tackle it or and and how did you how did you move to that and how did you choose the uh your co-authors in this i think and i i this is where my memory is faulty too i i do believe there was probably a very brief moment when we were going to maybe do a book together like the two of us are going to write this a book and i don't know that lasted very long and i had done some work i i had done this paper on i dreamed i saw saint augustine and part of the research on that was me going through the times it'd been played because it hasn't he hasn't played that song. It's it's a it's a group it's a group of live performances you can capture, right? It's not there's not that many performances. And I kind of tracked that and then she gave that paper and I was like, man, there's something there. And that's kind of where we had some some agreement. We then decided, well, a collection of essays makes a little bit more sense. And I think that we then had a we sort of touch base with our world of Dylan folks that we become friends with. So Jim Salvucci, Nina Goss, Grayley, Aaron, and people we kind of worked immediately with. And they, they all, Rob Reginio, they all kind of were into it immediately. And then we did a call for papers and the call for papers then brought in a few people that uh, were new to us or new to me. And so it was kind of a combination. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly it. And then you, I was working on a different project because it was, you know, we were in the depths of the pandemic and Court reached out and he said, do you want to start working on this book now? And so I said, as I do, I was like, sure, we could do that now. And it really did turn into, you know, a gift during the pandemic because we had something to focus on. And, you know, we met via Zoom or we were texting constantly about something other than impending doom or a global pandemic and so it really it was a lovely distraction from what you know from everything else and we pulled the book together during that time and i'm grateful for that what your co-authors have done in the book is kind of key off the idea of the set list mm-hmm. and to some degree they go their own way you know there, some are a, a look at a song in two periods of time some are a look at a tour some are a look at a individual show 
Some are very kind of set list focused the way someone might think of when you say it's a set list book. And some are extract what Dylan was doing at that time or try to extract some there, talk about that period. So how many of those ideas came from you guys or is there things you wanted to see there? Or did, did I guess you did a call for papers. Did people just come in with these ideas and you said, hey, this is these are interesting ways to pivot around this idea and together they'll make a lot of sense. So the first group of people we we contacted, you know, we were just excited that they were excited. So and, and they and they each of each yeah. of them, I think that's about I I'd have to look at the numbers, but maybe about half half of that group were people that we sort of had talked to and they were like, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Grayley Grayley's essay was sort of an early one. And I think that was something that he had been thinking about for some time. And then and then we did the call for papers, and the call for papers had like a uh, I haven't looked at it in a while, but it had like a, these are all the, I, you, you know how CFPs work. You know, he, here's the ideas we could consider. And of course, you know, it doesn't really look like that. But then people started writing in and that's where we got the one on country music and mm-hmm. the one on hurricane, which I think is probably one of the more provocative essays in there. And then, oh, we touched base with a couple of people we had known the, the second group. A, a, a very old friend of mine ended up doing the one on the bicentennial essay. He had been interested in that for a while. So they, it was it was sort of, I don't remember, we, we had a back and forth with a couple of them in terms of maybe tightening the focus, but they were all sort of in. And then when we got the, just to jump ahead real fast, when we got the readers reports, the, the readers were all pretty into the multiplicity of views i don't remember them there is one one big asterisk here which we can get into but, but for the most part the press was like yeah this coheres let's move and i think part of that too is um with court what you had said is looking at how people interpreted you know the call for papers or the idea of the set list is what gave it a dimension that had we written on our own the book wouldn't have and so you know we also were able to bring in more multidisciplinary you know, views and different generational views, because we have some great younger writers there as well. And maybe some of that, uh, and I'll be a little bit, not really negative, but critical of us, or that this was the first time that we've done an edited collection. And so we were learning along the way. And so, you know, when we do the next one, maybe it will be a little bit tighter. But I think that looseness added to, you know, really the richness of the interpretations, if that makes any sense. The the one the one thing we wanted going in was kind of a multidisciplinary element. Uh, we're in straddles history and lit. I'm a historian, and so then we were trying to get some lit people, some history people. We ended up getting someone from Com Studies. We have, and the other thing too, about that's cool about the book is that we have people that are uh, literature professors, history professors. We have high school teachers. We have a PhD candidate. We've got an MA candidate, actually. Uh, we have a, an adjunct professor. We have people, kind of uh, an administrator, uh, a poet. We have people sort of coming from different elements. So it's not like you're going to read 12 history essays, which I know is probably, you know, it's, that's what lights me up. But that's what <laughs> most people don't care about. But I think having some history, some, some lit, some calm studies, I think that's what really gives the, the book a little bit of kind of a, a different sort of layer to it. and also explains why they're approaching it differently. You know, they're approaching it differently because of their fields and because of their perspectives and because of what their interests. And we have a lot of women too in the book, which I was really proud of. 
Yeah, so that does point to something we didn't mention, which is this is kind of the academic wing, as I've called you, of the of the Bob Dylan weirdos or freaks or whatever the appropriate name for this group is. It's a very highly literate book. I was there was a chapter. I'm, it might have been Jim's that I was about to make a list of big words just for fun of like, holy cow. Um, was um, it Rob's? <laughs> there are other academic many actually other academic books of Bob Dylan, but I like that this is kind of taking um kind of pedestrian topic, if you will, of the, of the concerts. I mean, there's a lot of other topics within Bob that get that kind of treatment. And this kind of elevates them and and benefits from the rigor in that whole class of fields that you were just mentioning, Court, that people bring to it. It's interesting to see that <laughs> academic tone uh, of, of the writing. Um, right. Uh, well, let's 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 start talking a little bit about about the essays because it really is it, it does overall and I you know I read over the last few days it it is a nice collection that like the lengths are great meaning they're they're digestible they kind of get to the meat of the point they don't go on too long um, and then you you get to another one which is the nice thing about about books like this and yet there's also a nice diversity of periods right you go from the 60s to you know the very beginning you know some degree with your stuff court all the way through. Shadow Kingdom and and Rough and Rowdy Ways even gets coverage, but there's plenty of uh, you know 70s and 80s. I think everything gets covered in there. We originally had Jeff Fallis was going to write mm-hmm. on kind of into the 90s, and Fallis was he had an essay that he had pitched that he was going to do on on the kind of the never ending tour into the 90s, and that that was because that we don't have that, weirdly we don't have that many people overlying that piece. And then Fallis, as readers will be excited to learn, he's a poet. And he ended up doing a collection of sonnets that we ended up moving to the end. And so his sonnets are actually about the never-ending tour, 90s period. But we don't actually have... It's weird because you would think you would have had several people write on that. And in fact, I think we have sort of based around that. We have the 60s, 70s, 80s. Yeah. And then we have Nina, Nina Goss and Laura Tenshirt both sort of touched on Shadow Kingdom, which had been out. And they, do, they both do very different things with it. But I thought it was really cool that we had to, uh, something that was a little bit more current. And then the, 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 the end piece, we ended up shifting because Dylan in 22 all of a sudden threw out Friend of the Devil and some other covers. And of course, now, since then, uh, He's done so much more of that, and we would probably have to completely rewrite that. But that was kind of the the headline news of the moment when we were going to press. So that's why that's. Let Let's dive into some of them. We, we maybe won't do them all. So, Court, you start the book out with um, Bob's treatment of Woody Guthrie, and I think it's if I remember correctly, it's kind of a comparative of an early and a, and a later version. Yeah, um, this was this came from two two pieces. One is that I have a, a lovely group of scholars I work with with Woody Guthrie, and so I, I touch with the Woody Guthrie people a, a lot, and um, so that kind of made sense to me. And the essay was sort of like a, an example as to kind of how I thought a lot of these you know you could look at. This. In other words, here's a song, and it's not in some ways it's the song. It's the primal moment of creation for bob in some ways and he doesn't play it that often you know it's not a song he's a song he's proud of there's a beautiful autograph where he basically writes out the entire song as an autograph and he's clearly proud of it but he doesn't play it an awful lot and that was intriguing and then as a historian i don't touch on this so much but there's that idea of 
what does the performer think about when it's going to these particular songs? I mean, there's a lot of songs he plays all the time. But some of these songs, obviously, like when he goes to a song to Woody, what's going on there? And that's kind of where I was tracking it. So he plays it in the 70s, then he brings it back in the 90s a lot. And it was just kind of a, maybe a little bit of a think piece sort of kind of idea of like, well, what's kind of going on here? But I do find it fascinating when you kind of consider where does this come in and, and, and why, why then, you know, there are particular moments you would think that he'd be playing it a lot and he doesn't. And then all of a sudden he starts playing it all the time uh, and then it disappears. So that was kind of the, the, the mentality behind it. It does bring up this kind of meta opportunity to just talk about why songs appear and disappear. And, you know, I think, you know, a, a risk of this obviously is overreading, you know, Bob's meaning in in everything he does, but and you know it is very clear from what he does that there is often it's very specific meaning, especially in unique circumstances when he picks songs. Right, it's been shown very clearly that often in in retrospect or in hindsight when someone explains, oh, this made sense for that reason. It wasn't just you know he picked this for Clinton or he picked this for Obama or, or whatever the case may be. So. Looking at a song, I just looked, it was, it's 53 times Song to Woody has been played, according to the website. But, you know, songs come and go. And some of the explanations in the book, I'm not going to remember which ones exactly, but there was things about why songs were played at different times that I would have never got. That's, that's really interesting. So that, that becomes a whole, a whole other area of, of possible exploration to take what you've done with Song to Woody and look at other songs that came and went and, and then try to figure out what was that you know, he yeah. missed it. It had been a while, or was it that? Oh, that song fit this occasion or this period. I think when you get to the '80s, I think you have people like Tom Petty saying, "Let's do this," and you have Jerry Garcia saying, "I would love to do this." And when the Dead's playing with them, they're like, "Let's." And I think that there's a very clear connection to him kind of picking up on songs again that he hadn't played in a long time. That's a whole other. Story. But the other side note that I want to just briefly mention is that there is the very particular set list of. January 1968 at the Woody Guthrie tribute. And that is such a beautiful example of why those three songs, why does he, he could have done anything and they would have allowed him to do anything. And he, he, he says, these are the three songs that are my vision of Woody. And I think that there's a real beautiful sort of element there. It's not so much of like knowing, well, what was he thinking all the time at any given, you know, that's hard to do. And it's not really, up to us, really. But I do think that that it's a fascinating sort of moment. You have these moments you can go, yeah, well, he picked, he does pick these three. And like what Aaron's whole, the whole starting point with her was like, you know, in this particular period of his touring, he is making these very specific opening salvos of songs. It's meaningful. Now, it may not be meaningful in the same way that we're building a narrative, but like with the current tour and everything else, there is a very specific thing he's trying to do. And I don't think that that's, that's, I mean, I think that's obvious. Now, what he's trying to say beyond that, no. It, I mean, it's obvious. Obviously, we're people who look more closely than most people do. But, you know, and I think from the period Aaron started talking about, I remember Anne-Margaret Daniel wrote a piece that I just loved that was in No Depression about one of the Beacon shows in, in that period. I'm, I'm not sure the year, but 15, 13, something like that. When also the lighting became this sort of stage play lighting. And this idea that, you know, I've, I always say this to people, he's playing all the same songs because he's doing one thing. Even in the, you know, the reviews in the press of these shows, 
that leap from same set list to there's a story there is never mentioned ever. So it, it really is a, an interesting point that's very helpful to bring up and expand on. I think there are kind of two ways to look at this that, you know, well, the first is you know, we are the academic wing. And so the T.S. Eliot essay, Tradition of the Individual Talent, once the artist is at, once the art is out there, the artist and, or, you know, artistic intent kind of, it's part of the story. But then there's people like us and even, you know, in the larger Dylan community who are going to maybe find those strands. And as long as we can connect them to make sense and we're supporting our connections in a way that seems rational or logical, I think that those interpretations are then, this is the second point, part of the conversation. I'm not interested in saying, like Court, you just said earlier, like, I'm not interested in saying this is what Dylan was thinking because I have no idea what he was thinking. I'm more interested in this is what I saw when I was experiencing this live performance or the series of live performances. And then when I looked back and look at the way the language is working together, he seems like a Prufrockian character. Like there is a Prufrockian like modern anxiety or contemporary anxiety running through the course of that, that set list that really is, is, you know, telling us something. And then my point about it getting darker two days after Trump was elected really personal politics included, spoke to me in, in a particular way that I thought, well, he, you know, subs these songs out to tell us something even darker is coming, perhaps. And maybe he's not doing that consciously, because I don't think he's making political statements. But I think there's something, you know, that I got from it that I was reading, like, okay, well, he did change it to be a little bit darker. But that's the fun of it is that other people will then take the set list idea and maybe start to look at that in terms of narrative construction or the way that court looks at it at set lists of where the song is being played. And that's kind of how Simon McAslin, the second chapter, the first chapter of the courts, um, he was looking at how important Montreal was to creating Dylan's stage presence and also, you know, to different songs that he's tested out in Montreal, like Blind Willie McTell in 1997. And so he, I loved that he kind of looked at this particular place in terms of the set list and how Dylan is now using it as a test ground for other things. And so again, that's another way to look at place and set list and performance kind of different than the way Court and I did. Yeah, I love that. I love that chapter. I, I've always loved that show, but I didn't realize, for example, you know, the number of of only time played or the number of first time and everything else about that. Mm -hmm. it, it, it is a unique one to have them not you know, have pulled out and made a bonus release somewhere because it's we have this beautiful tape of it. The other thing about the meaning in the set list beside, beyond the songs is it to me, it kind of feels like, well, that would make sense that Bob would do that and that to some degree it makes it more, I don't say fun, but more interesting for him that he's feels like he's telling a big bigger story rather than just being this jukebox and playing these 12 songs. That he, I'm sure he knows that for most of the audience, you know, it might be you know subliminal they're not going to realize those connections or no one's going to write it out but right. he still gets to do that and not just spin a wheel and pick 10 songs and, and play and i think that's part of the point too that once the set list kind of went back to being static the repetition of the lists is sort of reinforcing that idea that there's something happening there that may be greater than you know just the list of songs like you're saying just being a jukebox where it used to be we'd look at how it changed every night and how exciting that was. To me, there's something exciting in that, that 
stasis of just hearing the same songs or play him playing the same songs because he's reinforcing some something I think you know whether he's intentionally doing it or we we're making again as academics we're making those connections without overanalyzing God love us we tend to but at the same time there's that repetition is a reinforcement I think that's where the performance part comes in too though because is is the current tour the set list, I mean, there's the cover song that comes in but right. But but you look at it and you're like, well, do I need to go see various dates on this? But you do because he's playing differently. The band is playing differently. I mean, not always radically different, but he is. He played harmonica on <laughs> the other night on uh, mm-hmm. Every Grain of Sand. And of course, everyone's like, oh, my goodness, he played harmonica. Um, <laughs> but it's not just that. Like, he's imbuing it differently. I was listening to a recording. I went to the, one of the Portchester shows. And I was listening to one of the recordings and I realized that he does sing a line differently than he had that in the rest of the tour. Like that stuff still happened. Now, these are not monumental events on that level, but I do think it, it points out that even though the, the set lists are static and we're not, we're very far from like the 90s and the 2000s when he's, you never know what's going to happen. There's a charm to that. And of course, that's where people, I get the excitement there, but there is an excitement here on a performance level because of the band and everything else. So I think that's where it's kind of the enigmatic part of it. Like, Oh, it's not changing, but it is changing. <laughs> it's very, it's very, uh, you know, uh, you're kind of in a level of haiku there, I suppose. It's also another example of Bob deciding to do something that his audience did not want at all. And then eventually the audience comes around and now people, you know, those of us who get to go to a lot of shows kind of like it. Not that we wouldn't take a night at Toad's place or something, but it's, it's fine, you know. And the set list conversation happens before the show because you have the old timers and the heads who are like, hey, this is blah, 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 blah. But after the show, you hear people. I remember I was in, I went to see the San Antonio show and there were people complaining afterwards about, and those complaints have been there since 1976 or whatever, you know. So the set list, the set list conversation's there. It's just, you know, either people's disappointments or expectations. And I don't think, this is where you run into some problems. I don't think it's like, oh, this is the best thing ever all the time without exception. I don't like to have that attitude. But I do have an expectation that is geared a little bit to kind of what Bob gives you. You know, you're there to see what he gives you. You're not there to, to like, this is the night I'm going to hear a song. Under. And so maybe my expectation meter is just set in a way where I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed in everything else in life all the time. I think too, you make a point about, you know, Craig, you and I talked about Silvio, how people get so disappointed that he puts Silvio on the set and he likes to play it, obviously, and how you made the point that it's an up-tempo song. And so he puts it in when he needs an up-tempo song. But, you know, there's always, like you were saying, the people in, or the people in San Antonio that we had talked about were disappointed that he didn't do like Blown in the Wind or, you know, the songs that quote unquote made him famous. And you hear that at every single show. And it's just people who are, you're, have some unrealistic expectation about what he is doing. And I think they just came to gawk at him and say, you know, to check a box. You know, I've seen him. And I've thought for a long time that it would not be hard and it would be unusual, but I think appropriate for Bob Dylan, if frankly, you got an email when you bought your tickets that told you how to prepare. You're not going to see Billy Joel and you can't just play the greatest hits and assume you're going to get them. But this tour, here's what we'd recommend you do. And here's how we recommend you show up, you know. Mentally you prepared? Well, because I have friends, you know, who are not 
huge Dylan fans, but over the last 10 years who have gone, and I'll say five years ago in your period that you wrote about uh, Aaron, it was listen to Tempest. Because if you don't listen to Tempest, you're going to hate this show. Right. You're not going to know what's going on. And then, and they call me the next day and say, God, I am glad I did that because, you know, and right, obviously now it's rough and rowdy ways. And, and even certain of the old songs, the other thing is if you hear those songs in the current voice and the current musical uh, approach, you can take them in better. So I have sympathy for people who walk in cold thinking, you know, they're, they listen to Sirius XM or God knows what, and they, and they think that's what's going to be there. That, that would be generous. hard. <laughs> Yeah. We talked about Simon's fantastic uh, 62 Finian Club uh, chapters. Let's talk about Keith Nainby and John Radasta, Radasta, if I'm saying that properly, um, who looked at the core, 64, 66. They, they, I will say this. I, I hadn't met them before until we saw We Are at the World, the World of Dylan this last time, and they are just the most giving, friendly people. I mean, they, they, they're co-authors. Yeah, no, they uh they they're kind of the only ones that deal with that world tour, I think. And they play with it again in terms of the construction of Bob, which I think is interesting. Kind of like it kind of goes with the the Simon's piece where it's kind of like how he's making himself through this material and then how he's sort of negotiating that with the audience. Sometimes not really a negotiation at all, but you know what I mean? Like he's he's clearly aware. And and, and come to think of it, you know, those shows there was an entire box set of, you know, all those shows from Europe and those set lists are the same too. So I think that, that we, we have these expectations all the time and, and none of those shows were the same either. Those acoustic shows. So I think there is an analog there, but um, yeah, they go, they, they, those two essays kind of work as a piece of kind of the construction of the idea of Bob. But also I think they, they kind of address that, Dylan, in this construction of set list, and I know they use the word pioneer, but he's showing, he's bringing the audience along slowly into his transition to fully electric. And, you know, that's the cool examination of of the set list from the 65-66 tour, using the rapport that he has in that 64 Halloween show as the launching pad for that. But I, I really appreciated how they, you know, they explained again how the set list was not just a way to give them what they wanted and do what he wanted, but also sort of ease them into that transition. So I like their chapter. So then, in, then we jump forward into, uh, as you say, Hurricane and, and Rolling Thunder, which is a, you know an amazing tour. Again, not you know not the most dynamic set lists, and obviously if you're if you're traveling with thirty people and you know doing what they had to do, but we got we had a lot of covers, we had a lot of people playing we had a lot of duets and things going on um and we had the hurricane song you know this talks about the hurricane benefits specifically for example yeah, yeah landgraf and isom those two essays uh sky wrote on uh hurricane and then uh mckenzie isom wrote on country music those are not really all that related but those were two that came straight from the call for papers and just kind of fell in our laps and happily so in terms of subject matter and that kind of thing um, we did have another essay that didn't get included, sadly, that kind of dealt with a similar topic. But uh, the hurricane chapter is is sort of a, it's one of the, I don't say it's one of the few, but it is, it is kind of a critical look at some of this in terms of like, what does protest music mean? How is that shifting? Audience, audience expectation, you know, audience is a big part of all these, these chapters and audience expectations on what the protest song is about 
clarity and that kind of thing. And, and she's very clear in the fact that, you know, there's a muddled sort of history behind the lyrics and how it plays out in 2023 or 2022, certainly when she wrote it. And when he originally wrote the song, I think it's a chapter that probably will uh, create conversation. I agree with that because there's something, you know, and if this field is going to last and it will go on beyond us, that those original authoritative takes or analyses have to be puzzled through and questioned a little bit. And, you know, and she's doing that in a really interesting way. And you'd said it's one of the more provocative chapters, but I think that's what makes it provocative is that she's taking this idea of the protest song in support of Reuben Carter and she's really looking at, like you said, the history and the nature of it in a way that reframes it and kind of questions the the standard assumption about that song. So it's a really strong chapter. I think it's it's fun to see like from the hurricane chapter into the Johnny Cash chapter. It's again this conversation of now the Johnny Cash chapter is probably one that you might have been thinking about this one. It's it's one of the ones that is not setless driven as much. It's not as clearly connected to that. But it's kind of creating this world where because the inclusion of Johnny Cash or Johnny's inclusion of Bob does create this sort of other this other genre. And she she kind of details that a bit. And I think that her chapter sort of hinges nicely with Jason Tebby's on the Bicentennial. And those three kind of then look at this particular period from very different angles. And Tebby, Tebby is basically saying the Bicentennial is a really weird moment in American history. <laughs> and within this really weird moment of American history, Bob's kind of playing off of that in a number of different sort of weird ways. And I think that his, his got a lot of good feedback early on from one of the reviewers. And I think that his was... His is one that I think is a good example of how you can use one moment to expand various directions. So the Isle of Wight show comes up at the end of the Isom chapter. That would be an interesting one to, to really look hard at the set list and think about, you know, all the competing demands or expectations on Bob and, and, and what he did with them. In that case, both the set list and the, you know, the methods of performance, right? He really came out with the, you know, the new Bob voice and the, and the new feel. But mixed in old songs as well as those, you know, then new, more country. And then real old songs, like Wild Mountain Time. I think that's such an underrated show. I love that show. I love, I love, I love the way it sounds. I love what's what he's doing. And then she's putting that in perspective of like a lot of other people did too, and then decided to go off this other direction. Yeah, a country. One of the I, I've thought a lot in the last. I don't even know how. Maybe it's ten years, but. You know, we, we get this stuff so fast now. So that show, for example, being buried in that, yeah. you know, bootleg series, which there was so much, you know, revelation in the self-portrait tapes and all the new versions we had that, that disc three or four or five or whatever the hell the, the full show was in perfect quality. N- no one really had any time to sync on it. But if it was done it, you know, itself, especially with video, which would have been nice, you know, we, we could spend six months or a year just really diving into that. It's it's amazing that show. I think that 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 bootleg series is one of the more successful ones. I mean, they're they're all pretty great, but that one in particular is like revisiting stuff that you maybe have not listened to as much, or you listen to and then. But like the the, the version, the, the the other versions on that bootleg were amazing. But you're, I think you're absolutely right because that was in there. I don't even remember much conversation at the time about it. No. Um, of uh, people going, oh, we finally have this whole 
great reporting too. But I think that is a, a, one of the foundational shows. I, w- I wonder what, uh, how much video there is in Tulsa on that. We need to get that uh, Peter Jackson. Yeah. Get that Peter Jackson technology <laughs> in. <laughs> he, he, can, he can now just take a photo and yeah. recreate the whole concert. Um, Ringo's on. So, <laughs> so then we get to Grayley's examination of the 80s. So after all that, and, and, and Jim does 81, which is great. Kind of, you know, Jim does the part where he's coming out of pure, you know, the pure gospel. But, uh, you know, Grayley really looks at, at, I guess, the second part of the, the Warfield. Because you know, Warfield 79 was, was the fire and brimstone preaching, what is this shit kind of stuff. And those, yeah, they work together um, because Jim is really talking about the idea that Dylan is coming out of that the the evangelical phase, and he's trying to reconcile his, as he says, the absolutist religious beliefs with this sort of impermanence of man and his artistic creation, and he does that through the lens of performances of every grain of sand. Which I'd like to know what Jim has to say about him performing it now, too. You know how that might be a nice coda to his argument, but Rarely's piece is you know, as most stuff really does, a tour de force where he has taken the concept of the medieval morality play and looked at, you know, the the lessons and whatnot that we would get in, in you know, everything that sort of frames those medieval morality plays in through the Warfield, what he calls the Warfield cycle, um, which is a reference to the Wakefield cycle. Uh, and so it is sort of reenacting of scenes from the Bible, lives of saints, stuff like that. And he's doing that by looking at how the set list is creating that. And then the whole residency is making a series of, of morality plays. And it's, it's fascinating. I mean, to see how Grayley is able to make these connections and really go deep into the source material to support it and, and come out with something brilliant like this. They both also, I mean, Grayley's is obviously one residency and Jim's is kind of a leg of a tour. But, you know, looking at the, the combination of consistency, change, and kind of aggregated meaning, I, ca- I kind of think that's the right level of Zoom, you know, I mean, go, you yeah. know, going into one show and I mean, it's valid and useful. But this is kind of interesting because, you know, in all these cases of Dylan where we've got, we're just crushed by the volume of what's there of 60 years. I mean, I think a lot about how even the, the period, you know, and the Dylan Center has got these nine periods. And Mark told me, and I didn't even, I didn't even notice myself. I don't know if anyone else did that. They changed the nine periods in mixing up the medicine from the nine periods that are on the wall at the Dylan mm-hmm. Center because they didn't fit exactly right. And which, in and of itself, is interesting that it's not even clear enough, you know, when Zone One becomes Zone Two that they got to keep moving them around. But understanding that there are that many, and that, and having caricature of each helps put some perspective and you know put these things into place we've got so many tours now which don't always align with dylan like uh, you know i'm starting to look at the 80s and aaron and i just talked about it and you know dylan's resurgence is thought of in the 90s but nevering tour started in 88 and you know he's got all these great years on the road which were still considered bad years or you know disheveled years for dylan but having these analyses of tours or or legs of tours wrapped up and say, okay, this one, this one was this kind of starts making sense out of the madness, (laughs) you know, instead of just 3000 shows, you go, Oh, there was a period where it was about this. And there's a period about that. And it becomes approachable. And then you can say, okay, well, if I want to think about that, now I can go start pulling out tapes or 
streaming songs and go, okay, I'm listening to this for a reason to get a sense of this and think about this set of ideas about this leg as opposed to, you know, just hitting shuffle on 3,000 shows, which is a hard way to listen, even if it's interesting. I, I like Jim Schefter and, and Grayley's quite a lot. All right, who's next? Robert Genio. Yeah, so this is 90, 98, 99. 99 the Simon yeah. shows, yeah. So he's got you know this idea um, based on the American poet Nathaniel McKay in the collection Splay Splay Anthem, and so he kind of looks at this series of shows as a sort of splayed anthem, you know, kind of to see you know to look at how one you know is sort of reconciling. I think they're what he says their cultural inheritance or their own you know his dylan's own place in american pop culture american music music culture but you know his own influence and how he's he seems to maybe be playing with that or reconsidering it in that that series of shows that he talks about in the in 99 the 99 tour with paul simon it's an interesting i i i really i like rob's chapter i like rob's writing a lot as well and i think he brings a lot of an interesting perspective from a deeply literary sense as Grayley does to to this middle sort of end section of the book yeah rob is a he's a he's a singular a singular mind and what i what i like about what i love about rob what i love about jim what i love about Grayley, these three in a row is that these are people who've also dealt with dylan for a long time you know these are not new forays for them and i think that it's 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 really great to say and getting to know them a little bit has been it's been really wonderful too but but you know rob he he and i are very different in terms of what we do he, he he's very literary I'm, I'm the historian but we we it's funny that we touch on these same sort of threads a lot and uh it's it's always great to see what he comes up with because he has such a I say unique in a positive way. I don't mean unique in because it's like, no. I mean, it's like he has a really great take on some of this. And I love hearing him talk about kind of the ideas he has about his new project and stuff. But uh, yeah, this is a, kind of a, 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 deeper, a deeper dive, I think, in, in some ways. I think it's it's probably more dense in terms of uh, literary theory than, and Fairley's is too, but I think Rob really drills down in the theory. And I think it's, it makes it, I still think it's accessible, but there is a lot going on in that chapter um, in terms of his, his use of theory and his approach to, to the subject. I, I often, as I went to the book, wish I could click on things and hear them. <laughs> and hear them. I have this whole book bookmark, I'm sure Aaron does too. I have a bookmark of all those, uh, the ones I could find of Song to Woody. And it's like, yeah, you, there's just no way you could do it. Uh, right. I guess you could. You I could. I mean, and playlist, right, you have all the bootlegs. You could do it. Oh, I have them all. Yeah, no, I'm just saying it, it, it'd be interesting to put them out in in, in conjunction with this in some right. way. I mean, luckily for all of us, it seems like no one cares what happens to those things. Uh, you know, you can't necessarily get on, uh, you know, Apple Music or, or Spotify, but you can make it pretty easy now. But definitely, as I go back through this, I'm going to be pulling up lots of shows because it is it's kind of a multimedia thing being done in a, in text here. There's these distinctions made about 99, but it just now made me think how clear the, the line was for Dylan's performance around time on a mind, which I spent a lot of time thinking about, but the 95, 96 shows were a certain thing. 
but he really did come into 97, 98 with you know, that, that sort of old cowboy man, cowboy band thing playing these kind of, I forget which cover he talks about at the beginning here, but the, you know, those old songs. And I saw a lot of those shows. That was actually 99 was the first year I saw tons of shows, but the, the, that he had metamorphosized alongside of his career. Um, almost as if the, the, the time out of mind being a pivot in the career was also instantiated in the, in the concerts. Next, we get to you, Aaron. And, and I said, I'd really love this piece because this is a, a period and a topic that I'd really thought about, you know, when the set list started solidifying, but it was clear something else was going on. So why don't you formally talk us through this idea that in 2013, Bob started doing something new. I think, did, it, did I talk about it, about the proof Rockian angle? And I felt that there was this anxiety, sort of contemporary anxiety that, that pulled us through. Court's nodding. I did talk about it. So this time through, for those of us not as literary as you two, give us the, tell us the background What's of what proof Rockian means. <laughs> you know, clearly I'm a modernist and my argument is so, is that Bob, I, I will die on this hill, that Bob Dylan is a modernist, that the fragments he tries to pull back of, of you know the the old world that has exploded as the modernists do are trying they're trying to put them back together which is why we have collage as an art form in 1914 to 1945 um, the interwar period it comes into uh, comes into vogue but what we have with proof rock for those of us who don't know the love song of J. Alfred proof rock the Elliot poem it, it's about a man who is so crippled by his contemporaries' modern anxiety that he is ineffective to do anything. He can't really make any decisions. He's worried about the end of the world. He's worried about the, you know, all of the things that have happened, the flu epidemic, the war, you know, crises of conscious, crises of, you know, this new idea of the subconscious. Uh, he can't, he's ineffective in relationships. It's just similar themes to what we have in the wasteland. It sort of runs through. That's why I called it the wasteland, Bob Dylan's contemporary wasteland, because there are similar themes in Proof Rock and the wasteland that um, I found in this series of set lists that he starts out a worried man with a worried mind. And, you know, he opens with things have changed. And so I, I just saw that man kind of throughout the set lists, even when he changed them. Everything he does, those romantic relationships don't work out, just like Proof Rock. He fears the end of the world. He thinks he's ineffective. And so everything he's doing is just sort of at the wrong time and a little bit off. And it's breeding this anxiety that he feels. And I felt like what we were dealing with maybe in a larger context in the teens and into the Trump administration really spoke to me in that with that sense of contemporary anxiety. And so I thought, you know, those songs were reflecting a sense of contemporary anxiety and so I, that, that was my perspective. That's proof rock in a nutshell. In the, the girl from the North country show that tries to weave a play around Bob Dylan song shown, there's a big market for it. So I, I think Aaron, you should write the play <laughs> that this set list could be played over and tell this story along with the songs telling of the story. And they've, you know, they've got a touring company. They're going to finish. They're going to have to go out again for the next cycle. I think you should, uh, should be uh, proof rock and Bob. I think it would have to be like 20, it would have, it would have to be like 2017 through 2021 of everything that's happened that would breathe, you know, that's similar to the proof rock era that breeds similar um, anxieties. But yeah, that might work. I'm not a playwright though, unfortunately. I, I, I'm joking, but it is interesting to think of someone trying to 
tell the story in a more understandable, direct narrative way, and then use, you know, there's, here's what Bob was trying to tell you that you missed sitting there, you know, screaming out for, you know, hard rain or whatever you were screaming. Right. And maybe, I mean, I'm, I always come from the position that whatever I'm saying, those are the connections I see and it could be wrong, sure. but it's just one interpretation, but that's the connection that I saw when I. Yeah, no, was, it, it, like you said, I think it's credible. If you can make the credible case, then it's right. worth thinking about. And a third of the people thinking about it can be thinking you're full of shit, but. Except. Okay. Only a third though. <laughs> I felt that. I felt that coming, Corey. I, I tell you, though, when you're telling people to lower their expectations, if you just say, look, imagine proof rock. <laughs> what you need to enjoy this show, you need several modernist these, texts. Read this poetry. Yeah, read this. Yeah. yeah. That'd be great. Here's your complex. Favorite. Yeah. <laughs> so next, Nina does, you know, a version of the same thing, looking at what's going on, you know, in Shadow Kingdom, uh, mm-hmm. obviously contextualizing it to you know, 2021, if that's when it was as well. Mm-hmm. But, but in looking at, you know, very clearly the idea that Bob was saying something with not only what he played, but how he played it, presented it, and the media being the message as much as anything. I loved her take. And there's that one bit of her chapter where she talks about it being a live performance, but not live because we were all in our living rooms, but it, generated the same excitement and that it's really it captures that moment in time because all the band members are masked and you know just it's it's just Mm -hmm. it's such a fantastic interpretation it adds a lot of context to it right and that you know it made me think of hopefully 50 years from now someone will watch that and it, it, it really is an artifact from the pandemic and how excited we are we were we didn't know what we were spending $35 on, but we gladly handed it over for some distraction from the pandemic. And that when they opened that chat room, the absolute excitement that I felt to just chat with other people about Bob Dylan and, you know, the expectations of what it was going to be. And I think she captures that really nicely. And like talks about sort of, you know, a little bit of the artifice of the live performance and how it, it does capture that moment in time. The question is, in 50 years, is the shock going to be that they wore masks or that some people had them off? Yeah. I, I think that some people had them off. Is the smoking CGI? Is that what <laughs> Yeah. Well, you yeah. know, what's beautiful about it, too, is that you have Keith and John and Simon's essays that are kind of like the creation of Bob. And then Nina, and this, she gave a really great paper earlier this year about like her kind of theme lately of late period artists. Mm-hmm. I'll, you know, there's a nice kind of arc there too of like now he's he's playing with the image from the you know decades removed from its origin but he's he's still and the word that that of course a lot of us in the in this world use but maybe people outside this world don't see as much but just the playfulness of it all like it's a very playful film it's a very funny film so and people get annoyed by the rolling thunder scorsese thing but there's also i mean it's his to fuck with why can't can't you? Yeah, it's the same as people being annoyed that that the that the you know that that wasn't the band and the music wasn't live. Yeah, you know it's okay. But Wicked Messenger when that little guitar sneaks in, I still think that's one of the funnier things. I it's do too. Very, this is very charming, very clear. It's definitely another thing that I mean Nina's essay is a good starting point, but there could be you know books and conferences or you know an afternoon just talking about what's going on there and what it meant. Um, and I do think it's another one that. You know, it was the only thing at that for that one moment. 
but in the last generally in the last five years it kind of went flying by and and obviously there was the period when it was there and then it was gone you know so we had a year or two when it wasn't officially available i mean I've, you know there was captures floating around i'm almost surprised that that they put it out in the way they yeah. did and then you know it would take at least two hours to talk about that the font on the cover um <laughs> But it's also great too because it's the early songs, right? It's the early songs, what they call the early yeah, songs. Yeah, yeah. And then like you know, you know, Chronicle Volume Chronicles Volume One, like these great little teases. Of course, there's gonna be a problem. Well, that that that's why that gives me hope, really, more than anything. Just the idea that he would come back and do a second one, which, yeah, you know, he's got to do something in 2025. So yeah, maybe. All right, and then we get to Laura looking at time and how that shifts through Bob's work, particularly in the, in the later period, as he's perhaps aware of the calendar and the clock. I mean, yeah, it touches the same kind of ground a little bit, but very differently. And I think she's again, kind of a, a good example of using maybe a broader, a broader framework, but looking at it in like a different uh, and again, right. and, 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 and as she does bringing in visual art and some yeah. of the other yeah. work, I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, very much a part of kind of how she's been looking at stuff recently on her. It's a podcast, but it seems much bigger than a podcast. The world of Laura. Uh, But I love the visual art and um, kind of stuff that doesn't get talked about as much in other. So the book ends, as you said, with Jeff uh, Fallis's sonnets. You come for the essays, but you stay. Stay seated. Yeah, that's what, what. Yeah, I was gonna just tell the story that you know the deadlines for the drafts were coming up, and then they passed. And he sent us an email and said that he was really uninspired to write a traditional academic essay, but he had he was inspired to write sonnets. And so we're like, all right, send the sonnets. And we thought they were really cool. And people loved them in uh, Tulsa. Yeah, they did. I'm I'm glad we you know he got to to read them for us. They were great, and so when we sent them to the reader, that was and probably the question that we got was how do these fit? And then you know because we really wanted to keep them, we had to think of a way that they fit. And we had a meeting at our little coffee shop, and we decided that we would make them an encore because if it's a book about set lists and or you describe it as a cute solution. And maybe it is, um, but it worked and Rutledge liked it. And so we got to keep the sonnets, which I think add a lot as an encore to sort of, you know, sort of finish the the entire book really nicely. And what I what I like about Jeff's work is that it's also it's kind of in the end, after all of this, he's also putting himself directly in as an audience. Right. Because these are shows he went to and experienced. And then he's writing about it in the places and the, and I think that that's kind of a, of a fun little alternate piece to this where he's, he's, he has the capacity and the ability to, to analyze and intellectualize an essay form as the others, but then he's also taking a different step at this. And I think there's something really kind of interesting where here's a, here's, here is the audience kind of reconstructing this. And, some, and he's playing with the set list in, in a particular in a particular fashion, but I, I think it, I think it turned out to be pr- pretty successful, and to have that as a kind of a summary, well, not a summary, but to have all of them in, in the aggregate, I think worked. Pretty well. So we should admit that it's an expensive book in hardcover, 
Um, and people are encouraged to make their employers pay for it, but there is a uh, a Kindle version that makes it uh, slightly more affordable. Mm-hmm. Kindle is, uh, yeah, going to be probably the more rational. It's a fascinating book, and it really is, like I, like I said at the top, to find uh, an angle of Bob Dylan that has not been excruciatingly beat to death. Um, and I think you found a very rich one. I think people are going to follow your lead and do a lot more work yeah. on the set lists. Um, I think I think it's really great. But uh, you, you've pulled together a bunch of great essays from, from great writers. And uh, thanks for giving us this preview. People can go buy their own copy and dive in. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Did you enjoy this show? Then please rate this podcast and leave a review. It really helps. Also, sign up for seven days our free weekly newsletter that puts all the top Bob Dylan news and links into your inbox every Sunday. Use the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening.